Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDHelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. everybody and welcome to our Tuesday TIFF Talk. I'm Lynn McFadden, a Market Development Manager for Endogastric Solutions. I'll be hosting the session this evening and um, along with me this evening is my colleague Karen Gerth. Say hi Karen. Karen will be helping us um, address your questions that you post in the chat section um, and we'll we'll, uh, pose those questions during the show uh, with our physicians. And uh, without further ado, we are honored to have two of our uh, physician guest speakers here this evening, Dr. Veronica Pana and Dr. Koi Lee. So I'll do a brief uh, bio introduction for both of our physicians so that you have a nice background on who they are. Starting with Dr. Pana. Dr. Pana is a board-certified gastroenterologist at Banner Health in Northern Colorado. Dr. Pana completed her medical education at Texas Tech University her internal medicine internship, residency, and gastroenterology fellowship at Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome, Dr. Bana. Thanks for joining. Thank you. And Dr. Koi Lee is a board-certified general surgeon who practices also at Banner Health in Northern Colorado. He specializes in minimally invasive and robotic-assisted surgery. Dr. Lee completed his medical education at Indiana. Indiana University School of Medicine and his residency at New Hanover Memorial Hospital. And welcome to our TIFF Talk this evening, Dr. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. We're glad you're here. Um, these Facebook Live TIFF Talks are great because we bring a lot of consumers to the table who have a lot of questions about reflux. So if you don't mind, let's launch the session tonight with just a brief description. What is GERD? Sure. Yeah. Well, so. You know, GERD, it stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease, and really it's a pathologic disorder that affects one in five Americans. And what it essentially means is the reflux or the backflow of gastric contents or the stomach acid from our stomach up into our esophagus. You know, normally the normal anatomy, we eat our food, we chew it well, we swallow, and it passes down our esophagus and it meets this gastroesophageal sphincter, which is called the gastroesophageal valve. Essentially, that is the junction between the esophagus and the stomach. And that valve opens for it to allow the passage of food into our stomach, which then gets digested. So if there is a problem with the anatomy or if there is a hernia, that valve either remains open or it's pretty lax. And then that allows that acidic contents, which you know, is usually about a pH of two in our stomach to come up into our esophagus. And really our esophagus 
does not like that acidic environment. It usually likes to remain at about a five to seven. So when that acid comes right back up into our esophagus, it creates that gastroesophageal reflux disease or what we call it for short GERD. Wonderful, thank you for that uh, description. Um, what symptoms do your patients uh, most commonly experience or what do they tell you? You know, I, there's quite a bit, it's a good range. We kind of start off with what we call the typical symptoms and that's mostly heartburn. So it's that burning chest pain or right in the substernum, that's one of the more common ones. Uh, there's also sour taste in the mouth, there's regurgitation, um, and then there's also atypical symptoms. And atypical symptoms are things like a chronic cough, and that's due to that acid just rising up into our throat area, into those vocal cords and irritating the vocal cords. I have some patients that have come to me and said, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I like to sing in the shower and I can't do that anymore. I either have a deeper voice or, you know, it's just, it's a little crackly. Why is that? You know, that those are one of the things is, is hoarseness. Um, some of the other things that, you know, we, we see is patients have gone to the dentist and the dentist asked them about their hygiene, their, you know, mouth hygiene, because there's a lot of erosions in there. And that's, again, just that acid eroding through the enamel of the teeth. And I think another one that I'd like to mention is really a sleep apnea. So there's a correlation between sleep apnea and reflux. Sleep apnea is a disorder of sleeping. And so with, you know, anatomically, if you think about the esophagus, it's our feeding tube, it really runs parallel to our trachea, which is our breathing tube. And so when we're laying flat at nighttime and we have a sleeping disorder called sleep apnea, our throat is, is opening and closing in a way that creates this vacuum or negative pressure. So it allows that acid to come up and again, into our throat, we can aspirate that, which means it can fall into our lungs, um, which again is, is quite damaging. The lungs don't like a pH of, of two. Sure, that's an excellent call out. Not many people understand that there are so many um, comorbidities or other, other health conditions that are imp impacted by this. So thank you for diving in deeper to that. Um, what do your patients tell you uh, about how they've attempted to manage their symptoms or what are your recommendations for managing GERD? Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of different ways to manage it. And a lot of patients tend to, you know, they take Tums, um, they, you know, drink milk, right? Um, certain foods tend to make the, the symptoms of reflux or heartburn a lot worse. Acidic foods like um, grapefruit or tomato sauces, things like that. Um, What's interesting is that, you know, when medicines came out to treat this, like protonics, Prilosec, um, it took away a lot of patients' symptoms. Um, but the actual FDA, um, I guess, indication or treatment length of protonics in particular is like eight weeks, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's it. It's mainly for a trial to see if, to, to test if this is an acid issue or something else. Um, but, you know, patients, symptoms do so well on it that, you know, they, they take it sort of indefinitely and they feel really good. And I'm assuming we'll talk about this later, but there are a lot of sort of side effects to taking um, acid suppressing medication long-term. So um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of self-treatments. Patients, you know, will get ready for an acidic meal or something like that. And then they'll pre-treat with milk, Tums, 
you know, things of that nature. And it's, it's a Band-Aid, um, but certainly right. not, not a cure, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah, and it's interesting how many patients don't realize those indications for the medications and how long, it's a very short treatment cycle, really. But in what we hear, what we, what you probably hear uh, daily is that folks are, are taking them all day long and not following really the, the proper indications. And that's where some of the challenges or some of the long-term use issues come into play that we hear about. Um, so if, let's say that's one of the ways they can try to manage GERD is through the, some of the lifestyle changes, diet, what have you, medications that you were talking about. Um, what could happen if it's unmanaged, if GERD remains and it is not um, effectively managed somehow? Well, this is, this is where I see that quite often, you know, untreated or unmanaged GERD really can present with a lot of problems. Um, you can have ulcers in the esophagus, which of course is painful or can lead to bleeding. Um, you can form strictures or narrowing, you know, after a long, just inflammatory concept of reflux irritating that esophagus, it creates scarring. And that scarring can get smaller and smaller. And so then your esophagus can form this stricture where patients then have trouble eating, they're losing weight, or they, they come into our hospital and they have food stuck in there, yeah. steak, chicken, that we then need to go in and remove. And so, you know, those are the kind of the, the strictures, the ulcers. Um, some of the other things, though, I would say is uh, something a little bit more serious. Um, and I think I would even venture to say it's lethal and that's esophageal adenocarcinoma, which is cancer of the esophagus. So over time, when that acid reflux irritates your esophagus, it causes inflammation and it changes the cell lining to something that we call Baird's esophagus. Baird's esophagus is a precancerous condition. So there's a progression from um, you know, low grade, then there's high grade, and then it goes on to esophageal cancer. And really the, the survival rates um, of esophageal cancer are pretty low. They've done stud five year, you know, a study of five-year data where really the survival rates can be anywhere from 5% to less than 50%. So really untreated GERD um, poses a lot of problems and we want to prevent that progression. Um, thank you for, for making that correlation to the esophageal cancer. Um, one of the things that we, we do as a company is we rally uh, every day, but there's specifically two times a year, there's two healthcare observance holidays that recognize this disease and really uh, help educate consumers. One of them is Esophageal Cancer Awareness Month, and that is annually in April. Um, the other healthcare month actually falls um, this month. It's called GERD Awareness Week. And that occurs annually during the week of Thanksgiving. And uh, obvious reasons for that are food, holidays, right. stress, oftentimes are triggers for reflux. Um, so we can talk a little bit about that, but it's so important that we together, we rally to help uh, folks really learn uh, some of those um, challenges and disease, potential disease progression and, and advocate for themselves and get help early. So um, when you're talking about um, unmanaged GERD and what it might lead to, can you talk a little bit about to um, some of the tests that are used to diagnose uh, reflux? So if someone has it, what, what might they expect as far as diagnostics and testing? 
Well, so, you know, first we sit down and kind of talk with the patient and ask about their symptoms, the duration of their symptoms, and kind of what they've tried, whether they've, like Dr. Lee was saying, the lifestyle modifications, uh, you know, if what sort of they've already done. And then we go ahead and do an endoscopy. So an endoscopy is also known as an EGD, so an esophago gastro duodenoscopy, where it's a, it's a sedated procedure, so you're very comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a thin light tube with a little camera on the end of it. And you go into the mouth, down into the esophagus, and we take a good look at the lining of the esophagus, make sure there are no ulcers, no change in those cells that I talked about that lead to Barrett's esophagus. Um, and we take a look at that anatomy. So do they have a hiatal hernia? Is that valve just wide open? And then we progress down into the stomach, take a good look, of course, make sure there are no other reasons for them having these symptoms. Um, take a look at their small intestine, and then um, we, we reconvene. You know, a lot of times, if they've been having these symptoms for a while, then uh, we go ahead and we also do something called a pH study, which is a little Bravo capsule that attaches to the lining of the esophagus. And that gives us four days of data. And I tell my patients, you know, stop your medications for a good week because I really, truly want to see how much of reflux, how much of acid is coming up during that time frame. And uh, I mean, I know I always tell my patients, hey, eat the food that you normally yeah. eat and then some. So if you've been avoiding your pizza and if you've been avoiding your cake, just eat it. You know, it's, it's always the, we go see the doctor, I'm going to be really good this week and avoid the foods I'm not <laughs> supposed to eat. But I tell them, I would like to see what your esophagus is doing um, naturally during that time frame. So those are kind of the first steps um, yeah. to take a look. Awesome, thank you. Um, I'll just pause for a quick sec. Karen, are there any questions coming in in the chat? Uh, we do. We have a few. Um, I'm going to touch on, uh, I know you mentioned, you know, untreated GERD can lead to Barrett's esophagus. Um, can you have a TIF if you have Barrett's esophagus? Mm, good question. And yes, you can. You know, so there's a distinction of what kind of Barrett's esophagus uh, you have. There is the length, so there's short segment, and then there's long segment of Barrett's esophagus. Esophagus. And really, long segment just kind of describes the, again, the length of the change of those cells. So, you know, if you have long segment of Barrett's, that can progress to esophageal cancer a little bit more quickly. So really, we like to do surveillance endoscopies on that and not so much a candidate for the TIF surgery. But with short segment, absolutely, we want to prevent that continued reflux and, and damage. So, so yes, you can. And then, um, I have a question. Everyone I know seems to have GERD in some way or another. Is this common? And when should mm -hmm. I see a doctor? It's, it is so common. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that it, it's becoming more sort of visible um, and known to people, uh, mainly because we're hearing about more and more people who have these surgeries who have really good control and then they're able to come off of their medications. Um, I mean, I think if you if you asked anybody at some point, they, they can recall a specific time when they had pretty severe heartburn, reflux, um, sometimes even to the point of feeling nauseated or even regurgitating food. And, you know, it's 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 more common than we think it is. And I think the the issue with that is, you know, medication does really help a lot with those symptoms. But a lot of people, I mean, you know, healthcare providers included, don't really 
know about the surgical um, options or endoscopic options for treating this. And so, you know, bringing that more to the forefront, um, a lot of people sort of live with it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, they, they sort of accept that. And it could always, it could be so much better. Um, <laughs> you know, it can be. Exactly. And so, you know, it's very, very common, very common. You know, GERD awareness is on Thanksgiving, and that's really (laughs) when most of the reflex symptoms come out. We we eat a big meal um, throughout the day, our belly gets full, and then what do we do? We usually sit on the couch or in a recliner, which is the worst thing to do uh, after eating a big meal. So it's a definitely, and then, you know, to your point, Dr. Lee, reflux does happen. It is a natural thing that happens um, all the time. Our valve Again, that junction of the esophagus and stomach, it opens and closes. We, you know, our saliva comes down, it opens and it closes. So it is, uh, reflux is a natural part of an everyday life. Yeah, and uh, my last question, um, which kind of was leading in, you mentioned medications. There is a question is, uh, you know, taking PPIs for, uh, you know, a long time, such as, you know, years, is that harmful for me? Yes. Yeah. So a study came out, I want to say about 10 or 12 years ago that, that looked at this and, you know, we're, our bodies are made to have an acidified stomach and, um, you know, the, the acid serves a number of purposes, but, um, the things that we're seeing and it's sort of becoming more, um, people are becoming more aware of now with, without that acid in the stomach, we don't break down certain, um, elements or minerals for absorption. So specifically iron and calcium, um, we, we absorb that early in our digestive tract. So if it's not broken down in the stomach, we get poor absorption of that. People become anemic uh, because of poor iron absorption. Um, people can become osteopenic or osteoporotic um, with thin bones. Um, we even see it in some men. Um, and they're not that old, you know, 50s, 60s which is unusual um, to see osteoporosis in men. Certainly in women, it's, it's more common and more severe um, in people, who, in women who have been taking um, acid suppression medication for a long time. The other thing, um, and this made the news a little while ago when Zantac was pulled off the market, there was an association with gastric cancer. Um, and that's likely due to sort of a, without the acid, we don't kill off the bacteria that's on our food, you know, sitting in the environment and it's covered in bacteria. It's normal. But when, when our stomach doesn't sterilize that, the bacteria can sort of not infect, but colonize the lining of the stomach. And over time, that can cause a similar, um, I guess, like change or alteration of the lining of the stomach, where eventually it, it's been happening so chronically that that change develops into something like a cancer. Um, and I, I think that was the reason why Zantac was pulled off the market. So, right. you know, the goal of these, of these treatments, these surgical options and endoscopic options is A, to, you know, to stop reflux, you know, to give patients a better quality of life, um, but also to prevent or minimize these long-term side effects of acid suppression um, with with medicines. So thank you for that. So many so many things that we just don't think about when we're taking medication. Lynn, back to you. Thank you, Karen, and thank you, Doctor, for explaining that and those those correlations. They're so important. You just think you're taking a pill. You're not realizing all the other things that it could potentially be doing to your body, especially long term. So. 
at the end of the day, it's really get evaluated. You want to make sure you're treating what you have and treating it optimally. And that's best decided by uh, a physician like you. Um, before we go into what procedures are available to treat reflux, I'd love to, for you to kind of talk to the audience a little bit about your collaboration and, and the importance of the way you both tag team treating the reflux patients in your clinic. I think your, your, um, your multidisciplinary approach is um, just something worthwhile to share. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we, there's a lot of crossover with our, with our knowledge, but certainly, you know, but we both um, have procedural training, right? We're, we're technicians, we, you know, perform surgeries and procedures, but the depth of knowledge of, of each of our fields, they are pretty different. And I think being able to combine those um, really gives a, a comprehensive um, approach to GERD and reflux and heartburn. So I think, you know, collaborating like that, patients get better care. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm going to miss something. Sometimes Dr. Pana will and we catch it. And, you know, very little falls through the cracks um, with multidisciplinary collaboration. Um, and certainly, you know, it's, it's fun to work, you know, to work with someone from another specialty, you develop relationships and, you know, you, you trust each other and you're able to, you know, really, really perform a good service um, for our community. So I really enjoy that aspect of it. Same, I agree. I think we each have our own team of nurses and medical assistants and uh, they work really well together. So we come and we, we put together our what, reflex program, um, make a list, make a spreadsheet so that everyone has a good flow of what tests they need. You know, we have the GERD questionnaire that we keep together. So there's a lot of data and then the follow up afterward. Um, and, and that's really been great for patients so that they also get to see all the options that they have to treat their GERD. And thank you. And so with uh, these reflux sufferers, and I think, uh, you know, your main role, Dr. Lee, it's oftentimes there's a hernia present. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that impacts reflux? Yeah, so um, a lot of patients who have symptomatic reflux tend to have a coexisting hiatal hernia. Um, and so that junction um, that, we were that we've been talking about where, this, where the esophagus meets the stomach, um, that should be below our diaphragm, which is our breathing muscle that separates our chest cavity from our belly cavity. So when that slips up, um, a small part of the stomach actually slips up into the, into the chest cavity. Um, and within our chest, it's a negative pressure situation as well. You know, we breathe, we take a big breath and we suck air um, into our lungs. At the same time, that can suck acid up into the esophagus and predispose patients to, um, to reflux and GERD. So um, the, the presence of a hernia in a patient with GERD has to be repaired. Um, you know, whether there's a, a wrap or a tiff or anything like that, which we'll touch on in a bit, the hernia has to be sort of eliminated or reduced um, before any other kind of anti-reflux procedure can be performed because of the correlation with hiatal hernia and GERD. So that has to be fixed first. Um, I tend to perform those with tiny incisions, typically with uh, the Da Vinci robot. Um, and it's, you know, it's usually a very fast surgery on my, on my side of things. 
Um, we tend to keep patients overnight one night. Um, some groups who do a lot of these are sending patients home same day. Um, and we're kind of moving towards that, I think. I think mm -hmm. the pandemic um, pushed us a little farther just to be able to look at that. Um, just patients didn't want to stay in the mm -hmm. hospital. So, um, but then once I'm done with my surgery, if the patient is a candidate for a TIF procedure after fixing the hernia, the patient stays asleep. And then Dr. Pana and her team come in and perform the TIF. So it's all done um, all under one sort of anesthetic event. So there's not repeated episodes of that. Right, excellent. So you brought up the TIF procedures. We've talked about a couple um, options to treat GERD, medication, lifestyle changes, et cetera. So procedurally, do you wanna tell us a little bit about what the TIF procedure is and um, how you see that in working in your practice for your patients? Sure, sure. So the TIF, it stands for transoral um, incisionless. There are no incisions and fundoplication, which is the wrap. So the TIF, it's a minimally invasive procedure. And really it's, it's sort of the same procedure of like having an endoscopy or an EGD, where we take the flexible lighted tube with the camera, we insert the device through the EGD, and then go down into the esophagus, the stomach, and then we take a look. What we do is we lengthen that esophagus, and then we take the, the, the upper portion of that stomach and fold that with fasteners to create this omega-shaped natural looking valve and, and wrap that around the fundoplication. So it is minimally invasive. You know, there are no incisions with this, and we've, we've had some excellent results. Yeah. That's wonderful to hear. And so, um, Dr. Lee, is it you doing the hiatal hernia? If, if a patient presents with both reflux and a larger hiatal hernia, are you then doing that first followed by the TIF procedure? Okay. Yep. Yeah. So that'll be done first so that the, the anatomy is then sort of normal to then be able to manipulate and form that omega loop. Um, you know, we're, we're actually collecting data on this because there's multiple ways uh, to perform surgeries to, to help with reflux. You know, the, the sort of old way um, is to do what's called a Nissen fundoplication, where the surgeon will actually take the sort of the upper floppy part of the stomach, wrap it around and behind the esophagus, and then suture that part to itself again. Um, I'm, I'm kind of of the mind that if, if we don't have to alter the anatomy so much, we can, people will have fewer side effects, right? Um, the TIF is kind of an ideal situation because we're not really altering the anatomy to form that valve. The, the Nissen fundoplication, and then there's variations, you know, do we wrap three quarters around, halfway around, on top of the esophagus, below the esophagus, off to the side, one way or the other. There's all sorts of different ways of doing this. The, the end point is to form that omega or that valve um, within the gastroesophageal junction. And that valve is what acts as the anti-reflux barrier. So if there's a way to do that without altering the anatomy um, to such an extent that people have other side effects, then that's, I mean, certainly that's how I would want it done. Um, and we were tracking this and we're finding that the full 360 wrap has a significant, significantly higher incidence of side effects, both short and long term. 
And so we do more testing um, to figure out, you know, who, who or which patient gets what surgery um, rather than everybody getting the same. So. And I would add what you said, you know, the this and the traditional wrap is a yeah. 360 yeah. wrap, right? Yeah. And the TIF um, is a 270 degree wrap. So that's what mimics that um, natural omega shaped valve to give you that barrier. So it really doesn't have as many of the side effects right, as doesn't. the Nissen, you know. Um, you don't have problems with bloating or trouble swallowing. You can you can belch or burp. Um, and, and that's why it has a lot more of a, a better success rate. Well, interesting. And it's great that you're tracking those results to really make those educated decisions or um, have those conversations with your patients. And to your point too, Dr. Lee, it's so important to have a broad range because there are so many different needs out there. So there's something for everyone. Um, what do you think is one of the most common reasons that your patients are drawn to the TIF procedure? Is it what you were just saying about the outcomes, the gas, no gas float, et cetera, or do you see other common factors? Yeah, I think a lot of it is driven, I think, by, by their conversations with, with us, right? right? right. Um, and, you know, having a lot of experience with these, with these procedures, um, we're starting to see a, a pretty significant trend towards moving away from the 360 degree wrap. And even in the surgical world, um, it's, that's also kind of decreasing in how many, how many surgeons are performing that because of the number of side effects. Um, and so being able to speak to, you know, to the patients regarding their, all of the options, you know, there's even some options we haven't mentioned, something called a Lynx procedure, which is um, a magnetic bracelet essentially that goes around the GE junction um, external to the esophagus um, and sort of serves to augment the function of, of that valve. Um, we don't typically perform that. And I mean, there's, there's, multi there's a multiple number of reasons and it's more of just a, a practice pattern or a preference on our side of things. Um, but being able to track the data and sort of see, you know, we have patients who have had Nissen's in the past that, that I've reoperated on. Um, I've done a few 270 wraps on my own without a tip, which I would do surgically. And then we've done a, a large number of hiatal hernia repairs followed by a TIF. Um, and the TIF outcomes um, combined with the hiatal hernia in properly selected patients are superior with regards to um, side effect profile, the ability to come off medications um, quickly, um, and then of course symptoms um, of you know, mitigation of reflux. Oh, that's fantastic. It's wonderful to hear. Um, thank you for sharing that. Uh, those things are definitely important to patients and you're probably hearing that every day in your practice when you're talking with these folks. Um, I'll just pause it again quickly for Karen. Is there any, are there any questions popping into the chat? Session? We have a few. Um, I have one a question. Uh, Teresa says she has a hiatal hernia and she did stop her PPIs would going gluten-free help at all? Well, you know, going gluten-free, that's a, that's a separate entity. Um, I know there's a lot out there for going gluten-free. You know, there is um, a real diagnosis of celiac disease or gluten sensitivity that absolutely needs to be strict gluten-free or, you know, kind of moderate um, intake. But really, there's no correlation with uh, a gluten-free diet and helping the reflux symptoms because remember 
Having a hiatal hernia is an anatomical deformity. So that's where that valve just sits open and your stomach is up in your chest area. So whether you eat gluten-free or you know dairy-free or any other kind of restrictive diet, that's not necessarily going to help that anatomy um, or the reflux type Thank symptoms. You for that. Um, and there's a couple questions uh, regarding the post-tip uh, diet and also if there's any recommendations on or diet tips prior to having the tip procedure. So I guess pre and post diet. I, I tell a lot of our patients, I think the hardest part of the recovery, you know, minimally invasive surgery, minimally invasive techniques have evolved a lot um, and really have improved patient recovery times and post-op pain and things like that. Um, I tell my patients the, the hardest part I would, I would think mm -hmm. Of this recovery is the post TIF diet because it is quite restrictive. Mm -hmm. It's you know, for four or five weeks, um, and Dr. Pana can speak mm -hmm. um, to this more. But a part of that is to not stress the repair so that it heals um, and really sort of sticks um, in order to to maintain. So exactly. So you know that is one thing that both Dr. Lee and I sit down with the patients and spend a majority of time that this is really what you can expect. And so really after the TIF, um, there's three days of just being on a liquid diet, okay? And again, like to reiterate, that's so that we don't create pressure in that area. And so we like to schedule those procedures on a Thursday. So the patient stays usually overnight, one night on Friday, and then has the weekend to relax with clear liquids. Subsequently, there are two weeks of just kind of a puree diet, what I call baby food. Now. I, you know, I tell my patients, don't go out and buy little little jars of baby food. <laughs> You're going to have to buy, you know, a hundred of them <laughs> for, you know, a normal adult-sized person. Um, but it's that consistency for the two weeks. And I think, really, we go over recipes. Yeah. We have a handout for them. And once they go over that and we kind of give them options, then, then really it becomes a lot easier to know what to buy. You know, we tell them go to the grocery store beforehand, kind of mm -hmm. stock up, and then they can sequentially have a little bit more that third week, start reintroducing a little bit more, you know, little sauteed vegetables and things that are, you know, we, we have recipes for yeah. them for that. So we, we do sit down, take our time to talk about the diet. And even though it is uh, restrictive, it's still a good progression. They're, they're ready for that. You know, they, they even lose a little bit of weight, um, which sometimes is a positive thing. Um, Thank you. And then I have a, one other question about recovery. Um, is the recovery different for TIF if you have a hiatal hernia repair versus just a straight TIF? Um, you know, it's that's evolving a little bit for us because I think, um, you know, the the indications for a straight TIF, um, I think, is you know, hiatal hernia of one centimeter or less is is okay to do a TIF. But what we're finding is um, a lot of those patients who are found to have even a really small hiatal hernia, um, if that's not fixed, even if it's a small one, they tend to recur. And so, all of our patients at this point who are candidates for a TIF will have a hiatal hernia um, or at least, you know, a diaphragm, we call it a plication, but where we suture the diaphragm muscles closed um, a little bit more to make it a little bit tighter around that area so that there's less chance of a hernia recurrence after a TIF. Mm -hmm. So um, 
But to answer to act to answer the actual question, I think I think a straight TIF, if a patient is a really good candidate and selected properly, um, is probably a little bit easier because is, is that is truly decisionless. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of not a lot, but there's some controversy of doing a hiatal hernia repair with incisions, followed by an incisionless fundoplication. Um, a lot of surgeons will say, well, if you're there, you might as well do the, the surgical fundoplication. The purpose of collecting the data is to determine, fine, if I'm there, that's one thing, but if the TIF is better, so what, right? So why, why do um, what may or may not be um, uh, at least an inferior procedure just because I'm there? Um, which is why I think a TIF is is really important to consider in the right patient, because it's it could be a better procedure. So, thank you for that. I love I love that explanation, uh, Lynn. I I think we're done with the questions for okay, now. Okay, awesome. Thank you. That was that was really a great explanation. I think people do uh, kind of criss crisscross both procedures, and so the TIF being that incisionless part and done endoluminally versus the robotic incisions involved in the hernia repair. So it's so great that you explain that in such detail. And just to know that you're making those decisions based on the data as far as what what you're seeing as far as outcomes. Um, I can't wait to hear more about what you're discovering in your in your practice. Um, when you're talking about life after after TIF, uh, what what are some of the things you are hearing from your patients about living GERD free or what are some of those uh, sentiments that you hear more more often than yeah. not? Excitement, really. I, you know, our patients come back and they, they really, they're grateful for having that procedure. They uh, don't have to remember to take their patients. Yeah. They feel great. I think one of the more, uh, I guess, things that really stand out is they can go out to eat to their favorite restaurant and you you know, their partner is no longer <laughs> kind of kept away from that restaurant because they can have their pizza or, right. you know, whatever that trigger food was for them. And I think that's what I found has yeah. been, um, they've been really grateful for. I hear a lot of the same, you know, the, it's, it's interesting to see these patients um, that we work on together versus patients who have had maybe a Nissen in the past uh, who come in maybe because of a hernia recurrence or they, they have new reflux even after those procedures. And I would venture to say maybe 90% of the time, those patients who have had a Nissen have never really felt normal um, following that procedure. Right. I mean, uh, the Nissen, um, which is the full 360 wrap um, done surgically, I mean, it, it has a place, right? Um, it is, that was the first thing that was done. It's sort of what everything now is compared to. Um, a lot of a lot of healthcare providers will will refer to the Nissen as sort of the gold standard. Um, that may not be the right term to use. It's it is the standard to compare it to because it's the oldest procedure. It may not be the best. And as our experience continues, I I'm starting to believe that I don't think it is the best. Like maybe we shouldn't be doing Nissens at all um, because they have it's tighter. It's a much more altering procedure. And so patients have a lot of what we call dysphagia or trouble swallowing. You know, they swallow, they're eating fine, they're eating fine, and then all of a sudden something gets stuck, which is really uncomfortable. Some patients have the sensation that they can't breathe, which of course is, you know, high anxiety. Um, a lot of patients tend to, who have had a Nissen tend to regurgitate food that is stuck. 
because the body's like, it's not going down, we have to get it back out. Um, versus these patients who have had um, the TIF procedure or even a partial fundoplication, um, they tend to do a lot better. They're able to, to burp and decompress their stomach. You know, as, as we're talking to each other, we're swallowing a bunch of air and, you know, I'll, I'll burp it out off camera, right? But, but those patients who can't do that, they get really bloated after a day. They, that gas has to go somewhere. So they actually end up having a lot more flatulence. They fart a lot more. And for certain professions, that may not be okay. You know, like people who speak publicly, people who are, you know, performers or something like that, that, that may not be okay for them. And so we're seeing fewer side effects um, and shorter term side effects um, with this sort of combined hiatal hernia repair, TIF uh, combination. Well, so there's a lot of aspects to consider when you're really having these discussions with patients. A lot for patients to take in and discern on their own. And, you know, they've got Dr. Google and all this other information coming at them all the time. So it's good to have a team like yours to be able to go to and speak openly and get some great guidance and advice based on what you're seeing. Um, Karen, do you, are there any other questions coming in or do you think we got them all? I, I think we've got them all. Okay. Um, Thank you. Okay, awesome. So imparting thoughts then to our viewers, uh, doctors, you know, anything that you would say to a patient who may be on the fence, maybe not have, maybe having struggled for years and not quite sure what to do next or who to see, what would, what would, what would your advice be? Well, I would say, you know, reflux is so common. Um, again, it affects one in five of us here in America. Um, and we don't have to live with these symptoms, you know, especially for those that have sort of normalized these symptoms. They continue to take medications and kind of put it on the back burner and say, well, this is my normal life. It doesn't have to be that normal life. It can, again, be where you don't have the reflux symptoms. You can eat the things you like. And so I would say, come and you know be evaluated take a look do the workup and then discuss the pros and cons of, of everything and decide what you want to do at that point yeah, yeah I, I agree i mean i was going to make a joke and say you might get cancer if you don't get it treated but it's that's not untrue yeah. it's a little dramatic so um i think you know the the most important part is is asking questions right if you're if you're on the fence as a patient um, you know, really, like, what are the side effects? What is your experience? I mean, this is me as a patient speaking to my physician. What is your experience with this disease? You know, what options do you do you offer? What options exist that maybe you don't offer? Um, you know, I do know a few patients who have had a lynx done, and they're doing fine. Um, I don't offer it just because I, I prefer not to implant, um, you know, hardware in that area. That's, that's just me. The data is also very good for lynx. So, I think having an honest conversation, and it's tough, right? Because as a patient, you don't know what you don't know, um, as any of us, right? So I think going to to someone who at least has interest in this disease, and certainly you know surgeons and GI physicians who specialize in this disease, um, there can be a lot to be had about having a conversation, and you know something may come up where we say something, and then as the patient, you're like, oh. Tell me more about that. I have a question about that. Um, and, you know, in the end, right, if 
we should we as healthcare providers should not be sort of imposing a procedure on you as the patient. You know, if the side effects are too risky for you, um, whether surgically or from the TIF or even the post, you know, post recovery diet or anything like that, that's okay. I mean, you you as the patient will always have the final say. Um, our job is to educate um, and to be able to explain and answer any questions you have honestly and you know to make sure that you you and us we make an informed decision together not just you need surgery or like you might get cancer so you need surgery yeah you're in this together it's a great message for your patients that that you're a team and you're going down the same road together and you're going to be there to support whatever it is they decide um i love that you have the collaboration that you offer and that you have one another uh, to work with, not just to uh, help treat these patients, but also the camaraderie you're building together in your program. Um, thank you so much for your advice and, and covering all these uh, aspects of this very, very uh, prevalent disease and helping the consumer understand it a little more. Uh, for folks uh, tuning in tonight, um, if you are not in the Colorado area to see either Dr. Pana or uh, Dr. Lee, you are welcome to visit our uh, website. We have a physician finder where you can find a TIF doctor in your area. There's a uh, physician finder tool in the upper right-hand corner. You visit www.girdhelp.com and look for a physician in your area. Also on that website page, there's a mobile app. We love uh, advertising the fact that you're able to, to download that um, and it's it's complimentary. So anyone can download it. It kind of acts as a journal for your reflux journey loaded with articles and videos and all kinds of information on some of the tests and workups that the doctors talked to us about tonight and so much more. And then lastly, we are doing a special edition TIFF talk for GERD Awareness Week on November 22nd. And so we'll be announcing some winners to our uh, GERD book entries and um, giving away some of those cookbooks. So uh, definitely tune in uh, later on this month, uh, right before Thanksgiving, and join us for a special edition GERD Awareness TIFF talk. Um, thank you both, Dr. Pana and Dr. Lee, for joining us and sharing your expertise tonight. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you, Karen, for being here too and helping with the question. Thanks for Our having pleasure. us. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDhelp.com or download our GERDhelp mobile app. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERDhelp. Live well, GERD free.